I gotta say, one of my favorite parts of training on Zwift is the community. Whether it's riding with new people you meet on the platform or riding with old teammates, the people that Zwift connects you with push you harder than you could ever push yourself, let alone when it's just you on the trainer, in your garage, or your pain cave somewhere. My next favorite part is the training. Training is a huge part of Zwift. There are literally hundreds of customizable training plans you can choose from. And every workout is an immersive experience that can take you from Zwift's world-class climbs to the streets of London, New York, and even to a new Japanese-inspired world. Those are just a few of the nine unique worlds you can explore. Many times, I find myself just riding around, checking out the sights and seeing new little Easter eggs they've hidden in the game. When I'm riding on one of the UCI championship courses or in the jungle on the gravel roads or inside a volcano, I'm just taking it all in. Time seems to fly by, but I still manage to get a great workout in every time. If you want to compete in races that put your training to the test and see if you're headed in the right direction, you can. There's a new event starting every five minutes, including massive group rides, races for every category, and time trials. Right now, you can join the Fun is Fast event series with training rides, races, and thousands of other riders from around the world to chase. It's really never been easier to find your fun training indoors. I love it. All you need to get started is a bike, a trainer, and the Zwift app. Get a free seven-day trial, no strings attached, at Zwift.com. Zwift, where fun is fast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Bobby and Jens. This is a, a little bit of a personal thing. Um, you know, life is short, and just recently we had one of our ex-teammates, Chris Anker Sorensen from, from Denmark, tra tragically pass away um, up at the World Championships in, in Belgium. So, you know, anybody that knew Chris knew that he was different. He was smart. He was clever. He was a hard worker. He was one of the best teammates that, that I ever had, um, that we ever had. So let's, let's dwell on the, the positive here, Yenzi. Give me a story of one of your favorite memories of, of Chris Anker Sorensen. I would almost uh, have to say it's two of them. Um, one time I only um, got uh, told lately after he passed away and uh, I talked to some old uh, teammates and friends. And there they said, listen, when we asked Chris Anker about you, what's the first memory is? He goes, I once had Jens in a TT, which was not his forte. He was a fantastic climber. TTs were not his forte. He said, I did my best TT ever with Jens in a car on a microphone behind me. He goes, it was just like magic. It just worked perfectly for me, having him in my ear, telling me what to do. And so that made me really proud that, you know, his first memory is like that he, you know, uh, I, I could help him a little bit. And on the other side, he did help me win the Tour of Germany. We went into that massive climb, Rettenbach-Fenner, 
Um, and I was in yellow and I had only Chris left as my teammate. Lots of people attacked me and uh, Chris was just as strong as a horse and he rode a good hard tempo, kept everything under control and be safe today thanks to Chris. So Chris, rest in peace my friend. I have only the best and nicest memories of you. It's, it's funny, I have a very similar story. Um, the last year that I was racing was 2008 and we had just come back from Tour of California and Tour of California was sponsored by Jelly Belly. And even back then I was just like, man, I've eaten so many darn power bars and energy bars over the years. Like when I'm going hard, I just need sugar. So I would have in my Jersey pocket, those little tiny packets of, of Jelly Bellies that they were given out in Tour of California that year. And we were on the second to last stage coming over Tanner on and then dropping down into Khan. I think the finish was in Khan. And we were in the breakaway all day. There was probably 10 of us. And um, I'm talking to him and I'm pulling out constantly in the last hour and a half of this race, these jelly bellies and taking them. And he's kind of looking at me like, like, what are you doing eating jelly bellies? And then the Tanneran starts and, and I go with the front group. I think I wound up getting... Um, second or third on the stage and and he was behind me and first thing he said to me when he came up was like man i know that you're older but like when you were eating jelly bellies or candy in the middle of the race i just thought you were checked out and you still like finished ahead of me um that that was that was really funny and then i don't think anybody can forget the chris anchors anchor Sorensen victory salute when he won the stage in the dauphine that year um he, you know, he's coming up for a solo finish and, and all of a sudden in, in typical Chris Anker Sorensen way, it's not the most fluid movement. And all of a sudden you see him do something like casting a fishing pole and then reeling himself to the finish line and he almost crashes and we're, we're laughing. We're like, man, only Chris could pull this off. And, and afterwards I remember talking to him about it. I was just like, Chris, you know, that, that was a really good idea kind of as unique as Juan Antonio Fletcher, you know, shooting the, the bow and arrow or the, the, the rock, the baby one. Uh, but you almost crashed. He goes, yeah, but you're not talking about that. You're talking about the fact that I was the first one to cast a fishing pole and reel myself to the finish line. So absolutely, Chris Anker, we love you. Rest in peace, my friend. Um, and just, uh, yeah have to adjust a little bit here before we go into into the show but um okay tough transition out of of those stories obviously it uh, affects a lot of us but our guest today broke the mold of a typical professional cyclist not only with his durability and grit to finish 20 grand tours in a row but also with his intelligence and engineering skills, from designing his own shoes to working with innovative companies and even competing in an Ironman event when he was still a professional bike racer. I find that pretty, pretty amazing. Adam Hansen is one of a kind. So sit down, relax, and let's get inside the head of Adam Hansen and find out what makes him tick. Okay, today our guest is Mr. Adam Hansen. Adam, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Thank you. It's great to see you guys, especially you, Jens. 
Well, Adam, I tell you, um, our, our careers didn't really uh, pass cross paths too often, but, um, you know, I see you on the internet doing this, that, the other thing. But uh, going back to the beginning, I mean, you're an Australian kid. All of a sudden, you want to start bike racing. Uh, you start racing, and then in the off-season, you come back and win the Crocodile Trophy like two years in a row back in 2004 and 2005. Then you move to the Czech Republic. I mean, fill in the gaps a little bit there. Let us, let us know how you started and how you made it all the way to the Czech Republic, which is where I, I believe that you're still living in, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so I was actually doing triathlons before, and I was a really good swimmer and a really good runner, but I couldn't ride a bike. And I knew a guy in Cairns that had a, that knew someone in Austria that had a bike club. And I thought to take my triathlons more seriously was to race in Europe. And um, so I joined a, a small team over in Austria called Rapsol. And I rode for them for, yeah, two seasons before moving to another team, a uh, continental team uh, called Graz. And I was there, um, yeah, just trying to improve my cycling to be a better triathlete. And I just sort of fell in love with cycling. I just liked the whole, yeah, the whole lifestyle, the traveling, having a team. And um, a lot of, in, in Austria, there's a lot of, um, let's say, influence from the, the Czech people. Like we had, we had a lot of Czech uh, mechanics, Czech staff, Czech riders, um, like any other country. Yeah, but a lot of riders from, you know, different uh, bordering countries that also race in the same at that lower level and continental level. And yeah, I found a, a girl there and um, I just followed her to the Czech Republic. And I've been here ever since. And um, well, not to jump too far in the future, but do you ever think about returning to us or you? Ne Never, no. I'm going to get double citizenship and I'm going to stay here. Yeah, I'm for sure here. For sure for the rest of, um, yeah, actually I love, I, love, I love Europe. You know, like for me, it's not like I live in Czech Republic. I really feel like I live in Europe. It's just so easy to travel. Like, Like, it's, Europe is just so close. Like, for an example, like Portugal, which is on the other side of Europe, um, this is closer to me than um, Brisbane, for example. And Brisbane and Kansas is in the same state. And if you're talking about Sydney, it's twice as far. So, you know, it's just everything so close here. Um, I just like it. I like, uh, like the European way. And, like, Australia is wonderful. Like, I love Australia. Don't get me wrong. But, um, yeah, you know, I always go there, well, not since COVID, but I always go there, you know, for a month per year. And, but I always like coming back here. And how did you make the jump from racing in a smaller team in Austria to uh, the big stage and a world tour or pro tour level? Where and how did, did that happen? <laughs> It was actually, uh, uh, it's a pretty, I wouldn't say funny story, but basically um, I knew someone that knew someone in T-Mobile. And um, I had the opportunity to do a performance test. So there were three riders that were doing a performance test. It was um, uh, Bus Gilling. It was um, oh, the Austrian guy uh, who rode for T-Mobile also. Uh, Cole? Cole, yeah, Cole and me. So the three of us went to do the performance test. And the, 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 the doctors came out and said, okay, there's three of you here. We're going to take the, the two strongest in the team. <clears throat> and I, I did some research before and I learned what the, the team mobile performance test was. So I trained specifically for this test. <laughs> I knew it was a ramp test, a super long ramp test. Um, and I really trained specifically for it. And I actually did the best performance in the, um, from the performance test. 
the doctor came out and says, congratulations, Adam, um, you're the strongest, so you'll get um, the first spot. And um, I was on my way. So I went driving back to Austria because I was living in Austria at that time. And I really believed I, I, I got the spot in the team. And then I got a call later and um, they wanted an Austrian rider and they wanted a, um, who was, uh, uh, I think, a, a Dutch rider. Be Dutch? Yeah. yeah, I believe he was Dutch. Because yeah. there was T-Mobile in Austria and there was T-Mobile in uh, Netherlands and there's no T-Mobile in Australia. So I just, yeah, it was political and I never got the spot. And it wasn't until two years afterwards when they sort of um, really changed the team with the management and um, they got rid of a lot of the riders except for, I think, three or four guys. And then, um, yeah, I was asked to, because of my performance two years before that, um, I'd had the chance in Team Mobile. So I was really, I was really lucky. It was, uh, yeah, I was super lucky, actually. I believe, actually, that's often the case in life. Oh, yeah. You know, that things have to fall in line for you. And sometimes it's just pure luck. You have no influence if it turns to the good or to the bad. It's and you exactly, can just exactly pray for how, it. Like, you need the stars, the moon, everything to align in the right place. You have yeah, to be, yeah. there's no question. You've got to be good enough to do it. But there's a lot of guys yep. at that level also. But you really mm -hmm. need everything to align. And, um, And that's the thing, like um, when you have also when you have chances, you have to take your chances because don't think that it's going to come around again. You know, if you've got a chance, you've got to take it. That's for sure, because everything has to be aligned. And you said something there. Um, you had a friend of a friend that worked for T-Mobile. I mean, that that's sometimes all you need to get your foot in the door. And once you get the foot in the door, I mean, you had a very long and, and consistent career And you just got to wonder, like, if, if you didn't know that guy or, you know, you didn't follow up on something, maybe things would have changed. Because, I mean, you know, you, you transformed yourself into one of the, the best teammates, the most loyal, uh, dependable guys um, to the viewers, that to the listeners that don't know. Um, Adam decided to go for a record, and that was 20 Grand Tours in a row. And... I've told Jens this before, like I've never finished two Grand Tours in one season. Now you're seeing young guys do a Grand Tour like their first or second season, and then they're doubling up by their second or third season. But tripling up, when that came out, I think, what was that the first year you did that? Like in 2012, um, 2012, 2013. And I was just thinking to myself, how can you do that? Like one is hard like you get done with one grand tour it takes a month to get over it then you kind of start feathering the pedals again and then maybe you can do the second one but what was it inside of you that motivated you to do so many consecutive grand tours and i think you re retired last year with 29 total grand tours which is a hell of a lot more than i did um yeah well I, I liked uh, <laughs> the first year. Like I love the Giro. I just love the Giro a lot. And to me, the Giro is the most passionate one. So I always like doing the Giro. And the tour you have to do. You know, you, you, everyone likes to doing the tour. And I always like to finish things I start. And the Velta was almost like a holiday race in a sense. Um, it's just always good weather. It's short stages. The stages start late. And I just love doing. Like I loved all the three Grand Tours. And I just had this idea one year that i just like to do all three in one year now that's all i wanted to do and i did it one year i actually begged for the sports director like i did the giro and the tour i was like can i do the belt he's like yeah, yeah yeah and he thought i was joking and i didn't see my name on the on the list i was like hey him and i was serious i really want to do the belt and he's like really i said yeah please i just want to i just want to try i want to do three in a year 
And I did really well in all three. So then I just asked again if I could do it the year after. And then um, after I did it two years in a row, someone said about the record. And straight away I was like, nah, it's impossible. Because the chances of getting sick, crashing out, not getting selected, because you've got to get selected every year, you know, and that's, you can have bad years also. And, and especially the crashing, like it's, it, there's a lot of luck to it and you've got to be able to, yeah, compete it. Um, I just thought it's impossible, really impossible. But as it went on, it's like, um, yeah, it was, uh, I, I had to do it, but I was very lucky not to get sick. And okay, you've got to be, like, I'm a very healthy person. Like my diet is extremely healthy. I don't drink alcohol. I really take care of myself. Um, and I think all this plays a you know important role too for longevity and that. Um, but yeah, it's it's um, a lot of luck was there also. Talking a little bit about luck and to add a little bit more to the legend building of you, my dear viewers, check this story. I will tell the story the way I saw it, and then Adam can tell us the truth about it. I am retired two fifteen, and I'm sitting there at the Tour de France start for summer in Holland, right? Crosswinds, rainy weather, crashes left and right in the crosswinds. Adam Hansen, I sit there and work for uh, NBC. And Adam Hansen crashes in the rain. He sits in the ditch, mud covered, with a dislocated shoulder. He puts his own shoulder back in place, jumps back on the bike, finishes not only the stage, but the entire Tour de France. So if I thought of myself, I would be a tough one. <laughs> nah, man. I would be just a chicken compared to Adam. So, Adam, I love you to pieces, I really must say. So, now you tell us the story, how it really was. <laughs> so, at, I remember the start because I was on the left side and, and, and the, the riders and the wind was coming from the right. And there was a little bit um, uh, that they were trying to protect and create an echelon. And my own teammate, Tim Wellens, comes from the side. And we goes to the front and he brings everyone across. <laughs> and then I go in the ditch and then everything went bad. And that was actually my, um, I think it was, uh, uh, that was the one that was breaking the record. And I, and I didn't think about, like to me, it happened, it was bad. And I always have this mentality when I'm racing that no matter what happens, you always sleep in your hotel bed that night. So just, just finish the stage, just do it. If you get dropped, you have a bad day, you, 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 you can't change anything. And the worst is going to happen, you're, going to, you're still going to get to your hotel that night. And, yeah, and there was a, a few guys in the crash, and I was collecting some other people. And, yeah, I, I kept going through. And, but at the time, I was like, this is it. You know, I was not meant to break the record, and it was going to happen. And I wasn't surprised because I was so, I was so shocked that I went so far. And it was very painful. But this year also, Jens, we had the Roubaix stage. Like three days afterwards, oh, of course, yeah, it was of super course. bad. It was super bad. <laughs> of course, just with tape on yeah. your shoulder. Oh my god, I remember now. Yeah, it wasn't good. Oh, but you finished. So yeah. chapeau, chapeau, my friend. <laughs> so you obviously spent a lot of time in hotel rooms. Um, I was uh, texting with George Hincapi today, and um, he actually mentioned you know he said to say hi to you number one but um he goes yeah i roomed with him a couple times and all i really remember is that he would ride his bike like eight or nine hours a day at training camp was there any like you come off and we're going to get to this in a second as being a super uber intelligent bike racer which let's face it there's not that many of us out there and i'm not including myself in that <laughs> category at all i think jens can vouch for that but like 
in your room at night, most guys are on Netflix or the internet, but you're like an engineer. You're designing your own shoes. You're, you're, you know, associated with all these different companies. What was it like for you in the hotel room when you got back? Were you like a sleeping tablet like Jens was, or were you just instantly on your computer? <clears throat> Jensy, you were a sleeping tablet, admit it. Um, what, what, what was it like rooming with you as a, as a pro throughout those, you know, 17 years, especially once you got into all these different projects that you're involved in now? Um, <clears throat> I thought I was a good roommate, actually. Um, I, they always called my room the office because um, I had everything. If something was broken, a rider would come to me. If there's a computer, a phone, I had all the tools. I'd carry like a little toolbox also with special glues and um, I could, yeah, fix everything. So I was a bit of like nicknamed The Office. Um, but yeah, like for me it was, you know, I came from a, an academic family where, you know, education first, uni, job. And I sort of went against my family's policies to go into sport and they weren't really, you know, favorable of that. Um, so always in my head, it was sort of like, you know, I could crash and my whole career could end st straight away. So I always had this mentality of always sport was number two and always have, you know, some type of other work or backup plan. And, you know, cyclists, we have so much free time, so much time we're in the hotels and with our legs up and you can do something. You can do something productive. You can learn something. You can do an online course. You can um, work on some projects. Um, it's just so much free time. And what I realize is it's, it's all good and wonderful, you know, to read the news. And, like, it, for example, like, Twitter was huge back then. Now it's Instagram. But if you look at your Twitter feed, for example, and you do that every half an hour, you know, you, you spend a lot of time doing that. But if you didn't do it through the whole day and just did it for one hour at the end of the night, you actually don't miss anything. Do you know what I mean? But people just have this feeling you just – they want to be thirsty to read about it or something. And it's just – it's just so much wasted time. And yeah, if you're just being a bit more productive, um, you can get a lot more done. So yeah, I was just always just, yeah, just trying to do something on the side and looking out for the future because your cycling career, you know, you guys, you guys are doing things. It's amazing, you know, but there's a lot of guys that aren't, you know, and a lot of guys finish their careers just not knowing what to do. And that's, um, that can be quite scary for a lot of guys. It is. And I believe in a lot of sports, including our sport, teams are really good in getting the best results out of the athlete, soccer, football, whatever, baseball, you know, but they're not the best in preparing a young and sometimes naive yeah. young man or young woman. Hey, there's 40 or 50 mm. years of life mm. after that. You got to consider that yeah. in terms of how you spend the money, education. So there we need to improve in all sports, across the globe exactly and the worst thing about cycling is um athletes cyclists get everything for free we get everything and we, we we literally just we hop on a plane we fly to the airport we get picked up in a bus we get taken to a hotel a lot of riders don't even know the names of the hotel or the villages they stay in and you know we walk we walk straight into it we get given our key we don't even you know check in we go straight to our room We give our bag at the front of our door and it just magically appears the next day clean, our washing. Um, and we wake up. We don't know where the start is exactly. They drive us to the start. They open the door. You walk out. You, your bike is right in front of you. All your clothing's free. Your material's free. You go race and you go back to the bus. You get driven to the next hotel and it's just repeat. You know, the food's all at the table and everything. Um, everything is free and you have this 
false sensation that this is what the real world is like, and it's really not. And and when riders retire, like I've seen, because I'm in the CPA and I work with a lot of guys that also, they, uh, what happens after their the cycling career, they, they just have no idea. It's like that we they live in this cycling bubble of and being totally naive of what's after what's after life. And cycling's amazing. It's amazing. But like you said, Jens, it's a very short career, a very short part of your life. And you have, yeah, for a good quality 30 to 40 years left to live. So, and it's a long time, you know, it's a real long time. And what's also what's worse is when you're talking about the money side, you know, when you're in a team, you have the young guys not earning so much and you have some of the top players that arrive earning a lot. But because you're mixing together, you're sort of spending the same. So the, the guy's not earning so much money. You know, they're going to the flash restaurants with the, with the top riders, also buying the nice watches, you know, and they're buying, they're doing also the same holidays and that. And they're living, they're sort of living a lifestyle at the top of their pay bracket. And yeah, and when you sort of retire and that, that's, that's reduced dramatically, um, just the lifestyle change can be, um, yeah, it's very hard for a lot of riders. There should be, you know, we, we discussed this with the CPA, there should be a better program and we're trying to do something about it. But the thing is why, like I understand from team's point of view, why should they invest into something that's not their problem afterwards? When teams don't have so much money to begin with. So it's, it's, it's hard to get teams to be on this path also. So I understand it on that reason. But, you know, it's more about the CPA's role, I think. Yeah, I, I remember there was like some little retirement fund set up when you retired. And I think it was like 10,000 yeah. euros or something like that. It wasn't really that great. But, man, doing some research on you, I just came across so many different projects can you give us a rundown? I mean, I, I saw, obviously, we talked about your shoes. I saw this bike that you designed for triathlon, which is amazing. I'd love to hear about that. But then some of the other companies that you work with, uh, I remember when I was doing some research on, on Limo, um, you gave the keynote speech or you were the presenter. And I'm sitting there, wait, wait a second, this guy's racing still. And he's giving like this amazingly professionally done um, presentation. And then, you know, so many other things, like, let us know, like, kind of give us a list of those different projects that were taking up that time, that free time that you had in the, in the hotel rooms back then, and maybe even now. Um, yeah, so we'll start off with Limo. So Limo is a motion analyzing system that um, you put sensors on your body, and we, we measure the pattern of a rider. So we can determine what script, well, how professional rides compared to our amateur rides. And there's a, there's a very big difference. And I've tested riders like Rowan Dennis, Victor Kapanats, who, you know, Rowan's like a, um, a track, ex-track rider, so he's very fluid on the bike. Um, and we use gyroscopes and accelerometers and the sensors to, to determine everything of what the rider does. And when you look at a rider like Victor Kapanats, who had the world one-hour record, his smoothness is just picture perfect. When you're looking at the accelerometer graphs, it is he is just like the standard. And... When we do the, 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 the we, because we have internal protocols that, um, that I, I develop and I get the rise to test, um, we can actually, just by doing the test of the rise, we can pinpoint almost exactly the top ride to the worst rider based on motion data. So um, it's actually, yeah, it's a really, it's a really good system and it's very affordable too. Um, so in this company, I, I work um, part-time with them and I'm in their research and development. So I, I, I create a few MPIs. Um, there were the, some that were already created before I started and just useful ones. 
and just to make the writer more efficient so they are obviously spending less energy for the same PowerPoint. So that's with Limo. Um, <clears throat> other things I do, probably my main, my main job is um, property investment. Um, before I was a cyclist, I was a, a programmer and I worked for uh, Heron Ted White Property Valuers in Australia. So this type of company, when you borrow money from a bank, the bank would pay a value to go out and they'd assess the value of the property. And basically the bank would give 80% of the loan based on the, the valuation of that. So I, I wrote the formulas to work out the value of properties. So when I came to Europe, um, Czech Republic, coming into the EU. The, so the, the idea when you're owning real estate is always best to have the cheapest house in the street because when you have the cheapest house, it, it, when, it pulls the value of the most expensive house down, but the most expensive house pulls the value of the cheapest house up. Um, and with this coming into Europe, Czech was coming into the EU and it was one of the cheapest um, uh, countries. in. So I did a lot of property investment in Czech Republic. And um, so what I do now is I have a lot of rentals, I buy old buildings and I convert them to flats. And then um, mostly now I'm just renting everything. I used to buy and sell, but more it's just renting because property prices, especially through the pandemic, everything's gone up quite a lot because a lot of people felt. I, what I saw now is um, people only slept in their homes. And because of lockdowns, it's sort of like you have to live in your homes. And people realize that their homes, like a lot of flats and that, they just weren't big enough for a lot of families and for a lot of kids and that. So everyone was upgrading. And so the property's just gone through the roof, and especially in Czech Republic and other markets. So I do a lot of um, in uh, property investment. I have, um, yeah, my carbon workshop where I make custom parts, um, a lot of handlebars. I also do cycling shoes. Um, there's that. I'm also a board member of the CPA, so I represent the Australian um, the Australian Writers Union. Um, so yeah, I do that, um, but that's not that's not a source of income though. That's uh, just the kindness of my heart. <laughs> um, what else do I do? Um, Tell us a little bit about that bike you designed. Oh, um, yes, please. Yeah. I, I popped a picture yeah. of of it up on our on our run sheet, and Jens is like, "Is that just a <laughs> a dream bike, a concept bike, or is that you you're actually riding that?" So at the moment, I'm riding it. It's it's still in the works. It was meant to be done a bit earlier, but um, I so I went to triathlons, and then because of the lockdowns, all the pools were closed. So I uh, sort of had to put the bike on hold, and then I made a. Um, uh, like an endless pool. So I made this four meter by 1.5 by 90 centimeter pool. It's in the garage and it's got a pump and it blows uh, the water towards you and you swim against the current. And when you um, swim too slow, it actually slows down. When you swim faster, then it actually um, it changes the speed of the water. So this actually took me two and a half months to build. So the bike project was put on hold then. And then, um, because this was, this was a massive job, it was a lot bigger than I thought. Um, but yeah, the bike uh, development is it's something that I've always wanted to do and the good thing about triathlons is there's no rules there's no rules like in cycling we're, we're so bound by rules um, and so I spoke to a few aerodynamic specialists um, and I tried not to speak to cyclists aerodynamic specialists because I, I kind of feel they're all you know, looking through the same barrel so I sort of went to Formula 1 and speaking to some guys outside of the box and asking them the same questions that you would sort of ask the, you know, the guys in the, in the know in the cycling industry because I just wanted more, more an outside opinion. And I, this is where I got that design from. Um, so it's basically based on, um, based on, yeah, purely on aerodynamics. At the moment, I've changed the – so <clears throat> the whole bike is super narrow. So 
your traditional bike has spokes, and spokes have to have a pitch angle. Because if they don't have a pitch angle, then the, the, it's too much flexibility. So you have the pitch angle, so you have stiffness. So this bike has um, carbon spokes only. And for this reason, actually don't have it here. This reason, I don't need a pitch angle. So I've reduced the front hub dramatically. So it's super narrow bike. Um, and then the rear, because I'm always going to use a disc or a three spoke, there's also a huge um, uh, pitch angle also for the rear stay. So that's going to be totally reduced too. And I'm changing, I've actually got parts of the drive chain here. Um, I'm, I'm actually doing it. And I've just 3D printed the, the new design of the drive chain. So these are the, the parts just here. I don't want to show too much about it, but, um, <clears throat> and I've got a, so it's going to, yeah, uh, with the drive chain, it's going to be all different um, because I want the drive chain also to be more narrow. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to have two collapsible cassettes. So basically the sprockets sit inside each other and when you change gears, the, that sprocket will pop out and then the chain will go onto that side and when you want to go to a gear up, then the sprocket will pop out the other side. And that way I don't, instead of having 12 gears at the back, it'll just be four. But because they'll be all on top of each other, I can have 16 gears <clears throat> but only have it four spaces wide. So that's that's that's... This is, this is actually the reason why it's actually been taking a bit longer because I had a different design of the drive chain and I, it was also a bit narrow, but I think this is the, the best way to do it. And then I can just have a single at the front and then I can have 16 gears at the back. Um, so it'll be always a straight chain line um, and I've got to get the drive chain done first and it's, it is, I think, maybe one or two weeks it'll be done. And then once that's done, because, because the drive chain's different, the... the, um, the um, the width of the axle is based on the drive chain of how many gears over the back. So this is why the frame's been put on hold at actually. Made. But this is almost done. And then, um, yeah, then the frame is, yeah, this is, the frame's going to be the easy part, um, but that won't, yeah, take too long. But yeah, so it's, uh, I just want it super narrow, different, um, not following the UCI rules, which is wonderful. I can do anything I want. And I know it's very crazy looking, but I want it to be crazy looking, you know. There's so many bikes that look the same. I want it to, I don't care if it's ugly or things like that. I just want it to look fast, and it is fast. I hope well, it's, it should be fast, and um, yeah, something different. Did you then ever thought about dropping the chain and going with the, what is that called, like a stick yeah, drive? drive the problem is, yeah, yeah, that would be the, the word, yeah. The problem is um, there are rules uh, that is one rule is that you must have a chain-driven bike. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. That's definitely one rule because I thought first I was going to do a belt drive um, just because it's more simple, but you can't even have belt drive. It must be chain-driven. Um, yeah. Okay. That's, and this rule is one rule in triathlons, but definitely in cycling also. Yeah, so because I know that Ceramic Speed has that um, – They, they have that design you're talking yep, about. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's why I asked. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I saw that project before, yeah. yes. But that um, that's actually not legal. So it's got to be a chain-driven bike. Dang. Yeah, you're you're not the, the typical cyclist talking about results and stuff. You're talking about, <laughs> you know, new tech. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get a hard copy of Valley News magazine, Choose two books a year from VeloPress. Access all the premium content from the whole outside family, including Yoga Journal, Peloton Magazine, and Backpacker. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events, as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value. 
every year in one $99 subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com slash outside plus and enter Bobby Jens 25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you'll receive our special 25% discount and you make a good deal great. So you've, you've been in this sport a long time. You have an amazing story, amazing history, amazing accolades. But we had Alan Piper on and he had like a different story than, than you have. With, with all the talent that's coming out of Australia right now, all the young talent, um, what bit of advice would you give them to make sure that they have a long and successful career and, and also post-career? Post I think um, to have a long career, I think it's. I think you need a good home in Europe. I think that's pretty important. When you look at probably all the top, top Australians, and if you're talking like you know Cadell Evans, Rob McEwen, um, and a lot of guys now in Girona, um, the ones and especially Alan Piper, you know he was really living. These guys were really living in Europe at the time. Um, not, <clears throat> I think this 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 is really this is really important for the Australians. I've seen a lot of Australians they come and they go and they sort of come and they just stay for six months and go back to Australia and they're still living in Australia. And I think this is, I think having a real home makes a difference because cycling is tough. It's it's you have a lot of bad races, and it is so nice and how do I say um, just better mentally for recovery when you go home after a race. Um, and if you don't have a real home in Europe and, you know, Australia is a real home during your career, you're just in another hotel, you know what I mean? And it's just, you just, it, it doesn't have to be like a, a nice house, but it just has to be a home. Make it a home and where you look forward to go there after race. And because I, I know for me, especially for me doing all the grand tours and everything, I love going home. And for me, I was just so happy when I can just come home. And the first thing I do is just lay on the couch and just, really enjoy my time and to me that was my downtime and i and i'd have a lot of a lot of recovery like i'd have time off the bike and really get out of the cycling bubble also um i think that's uh that's one thing um for longevity uh, longevity because <clears throat> if you if you stay in the cycling bubble like i i i i struggle to understand how a lot of cyclists live in Girona in the sense where they go to the races they're with the guys they're with them 24-7 in the hotels and then they sort of, you know, go back to Girona. They see in the coffee shops, they see in the supermarkets, they go out with them to dinner and they just, <clears throat> like for me, I never had that. You know, I go to my place in Europe. I was so isolated where when I went to the races, I was excited to see them. I was in the cycling scene. I was more hungry for it. I wanted to be there and I was never overwhelmed by the whole cycling scene. And, uh, and for me, this helped me a lot where I'm not, you know, 24-7, 365 days a year are surrounded by cyclists and just getting a bit overwhelmed. So I think that's um, having a home and maybe getting out of the cycling bubble a little will make you more hungry for two, every time you go to a race, excited to see the guys. Um, and... One advantage I do see from the Australians coming over is that for an Australian to make it in Europe, we, we really, we give up almost everything because, you know, we leave our home country and 
and and it's it's <clears throat> you sort of go to Europe the first few years with the suitcase and you're out of the suitcase and that and when I when I think of someone like that or you know a young kid in Belgium he's still living at home with his family he's still supported and you know he does have that extra support in the sense where the Australians don't and I that's why I believe especially in the olden days why the Australians really excelled where they sort of had to make it you know if you didn't make it you know yeah you, you just you had to make it to pay the bills you had to, you really had to make it where the, a lot of the Europeans because they had the benefit to live at home with their parents for a few years in the you know the pro careers or the start of their careers it was a bit I'm not going to say easier for them but they they had a shoulder to lean on sometimes so I think in that sense for the Australians um, yeah that, that was more their willingness to achieve better um, but after the career one thing that I was probably never good at that I, that I that um, I think is very important is networking. I think networking, I know everyone talks about it, um, but networking is super important just for opportunities in the future. Um, I'm a bit of an introvert myself, so I, I never pushed it. And, and I'm very lucky and fortunate just because of what I do and things like that. But I see a lot of guys who were introverts that they didn't really network so much. And these are all doors they're kind of closing, if you know what I mean. Because the more you network, the more people you know, the more opportunities that come, especially after your career, you know, um, you would get those opportunities. And I know for me, I've, I've hired people in Limo that are ex-teammates of mine where, you know, this is someone I've met, someone I've, I've thought very highly of, and I thought, you know, he'd be good in our company, and I've actually given him a job in Limo. And just this important relationship of just, yeah, networking, knowing a lot more people, um, because yeah, the the world is tough, and after cycling, you, you sort of you got to prepare for it a bit earlier. Uh, one more question I have: um, You um, mentioned to feel a little more hungry for cycling when you come back to races. So now you're 40 years old. What keeps you hungry? I mean, I did a quick calculation. You spent 609 days racing Grand Tour stages, and they are not easy. That's like far more than one and a half years of your life just in Grand Tours. What keeps you going? What keeps you motivating? Running, swimming, triathlon, and how long you want to keep going? <laughs> um, good question. You know, what really made it easy for me is every time I finished the Grand Tour, I'd take 10 days off a bike. And sports directors would just go nuts. Like, you take so many days off a bike. I was like, yeah, but, you know, like, what I noticed is actually when I went to training camp and <clears> – <throat> A lot of people say, yeah, but Adam trains like old German style, six, seven, eight, six, seven, eight, six, seven, eight. But the thing is, before training camp, I never trained. I had, when I was off the bike, I was off the bike and I was really off the bike. But when I went to training camp, what I noticed was I could do seven, six, seven, eight, six, seven, eight. And I would do like six, seven, eight, seven, eight, eight, and seven, eight, nine, you know, because they were the three blocks we had. Because I didn't do anything the month before. I just loved being there and I just wanted to ride my bike. Where comparing to the Belgians, they've been doing like three or four hours every day, you know, and when they got to training camp, they were just, you know, they've been riding so much already and they just weren't so motivated. And just by me starving myself, you know, having, when I, when I have off season, off season, like really nothing. But when I went to training camp, full training camp. And this really helped me through my Grand Tours and that. So every time I finish a Grand Tour, like no bike, at least a week, sometimes 10 days. 
and I get into it again. But when I got into it, I really wanted to do it. Because you guys know what it's like. When you finish a Grand Tour and you've got to ride the next week, it's, it's not so easy, you know what I mean? But when you're forcing yourself to do it that first week afterwards and the second week, you're still like, oh, you know, you're still going. But when you take that time off, the second week, you just want to get back into it. And I really starved myself a lot. So I raced a lot, but I didn't, I really had the breaks afterwards. And with the triathlons now, um, I just, I just want to, I just want to do it. I just, I just love racing. And um, I do feel like I can, I have a long way to go, but I do feel like I can go far in triathlons, especially the Ironman distance. And it's something that, um, I'd say, well, Two years ago, I did an Ironman in Florida. Didn't tell anyone, just rocked up, did it. And I got nervous, you know. I'm on the start line, and I was really nervous because in cycling that, you know, my job is to help a sprinter. I know I can climb better than my sprinter. I can get to the finish. I can do my job. And it's I'm not going to say it's easy, but I can do it. I can handle the situation. But when I was on the start line of this triathlon, I was like, oh, I'm racing for myself. Like, I'm racing today, you know what I mean? And there's a lot of times in cycling races where you're there, but you're not really racing for you. And I was just that nervousness I got where I was like, you know, because you guys would know at some some stage in the ground too, you look at your heart rate and it's like 55 beats, 30 seconds to go before the start stages. You tell people that and they can't comprehend. You're like, you're at the Tour de France and your heart rate is less than 60 before the start. It's like, yeah, but... You know, we can do most of these stages. We can do them. It's, it's not, you know, and I have no pressure to win and I've got a job to do and I can do my job. But at this triathlon, I was like, wow, that feeling when I was like 16 years old, I want to be back there. So, and I have that now when I'm doing these triathlons where, yeah, it's all on me and I'm, I'm racing again. So, I, I, yeah, I like it. Well, Adam, I, I have to say, you you seem to have everything pretty much dialed from from day one, and your Boston retirement. All the best in in your your new budding triathlon career. Cannot wait to see that bike. I'm a bit of a bike nerd, wheel nerd. That drivetrain that you're talking about that that's really piqued my interest because you're right. There's so many bikes that look exactly the same, and yeah, in UCI rules, we can't do much about that. But uh, seeing some of these like super bikes, um, you know, almost concept bikes, like Yen said, is is just kind of a breath of fresh air. Mm. And you know, triathlon is obviously in a renaissance. Um, there's a lot more talk about triathlons. You know, short distance, medium distance, long distance. So all the best in that. And thank you so much for taking time out of your your obviously busy schedule, much busier than a lot more uh, a lot of us ex-retired pros. And um, yeah, thanks for coming on, Bobby and Jens. Thank you for having me. I just want to see Jens face. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm blown away, my friend. It's so good to catch up. Finally, we should keep in contact. Sounds good. Instead of like having one WhatsApp per year, <laughs> we should like every now and then just check on each other to see how we go. Sounds good. I appreciate. It. I like that. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Thanks again for coming on. Everyone. Thanks, see Well. That's all our time for this week. Huge thanks to Adam for being our guest. Thanks everyone for listening to this special episode. Please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Valley News production in association with Chuck Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne and this episode was edited by Tim Mossa. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us.
I gotta say, one of my favorite parts of training on Zwift is the community. Whether it's riding with new people you meet on the platform or riding with old teammates, the people that Zwift connects you with push you harder than you could ever push yourself, let alone when it's just you on the trainer, in your garage, or your pain cave somewhere. My next favorite part is the training. Training is a huge part of Zwift. There are literally hundreds of customizable training plans you can choose from. And every workout is an immersive experience that can take you from Zwift's world-class climbs to the streets of London, New York, and even to a new Japanese-inspired world. Those are just a few of the nine unique worlds you can explore. Many times, I find myself just riding around, checking out the sights and seeing new little Easter eggs they've hidden in the game. When I'm riding on one of the UCI championship courses or in the jungle on the gravel roads or inside a volcano, I'm just taking it all in. Time seems to fly by, but I still manage to get a great workout in every time. If you want to compete in races that put your training to the test and see if you're headed in the right direction, you can. There's a new event starting every five minutes, including massive group rides, races for every category, and time trials. Right now, you can join the Fun is Fast event series with training rides, races, and thousands of other riders from around the world to chase. It's really never been easier to find your fun training indoors. I love it. All you need to get started is a bike, a trainer, and the Zwift app. Get a free seven-day trial, no strings attached, at Zwift.com. Zwift, where fun is fast.